On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about a report that was in the Globe and Mail about China sending soldiers from the People's Liberation Army to train with the Canadian military in Canada. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of questions about this. We're also talking about space travel, specifically the introduction of astronauts who will be going, some of them anyway, theoretically, we believe, to the moon in just four years from now. Should we be going back to the moon? What's the point of going back to the moon? Well, we're going to talk about that too. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There was a story in the Globe and Mail yesterday, and then there was a follow-up story in the National Post today, same topic, that I found completely shocking. It was the result of a freedom of information request that was made to the Canadian government and that was delivered, but by mistake, it seems, part of the stuff that was supposed to be blacked out was not redacted, or at least not redacted fully. It was still readable. That's usually what they do. They black out all kinds of stuff. This one somehow got through. And in this non-redacted visible part of this document, it explained that members of China's military, the People's Liberation Army, have been training with Canadian forces on Canadian bases. And where this document ended up going is that it explained the government is loath or was loath to cut these off despite what's happened with China, with the two Michaels, you know what's been going on, um, for fear that it might be seen to the Chinese government as Canada being antagonistic. But I'm sitting there listening going, what the heck are we doing helping train the army of the governing communist party of China within Canada's borders. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. He's an expert on China and Far East politics. He joins us now. Charles, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Good to speak with you, Scott. Uh, have I, now this is very possible that I missed something along the way and this is all old news to anybody, but have I missed something or is this kind of startling? Oh yes, it's absolutely startling. And it, it really shows the gap between the perspective on China among the, our political and economic elite and ordinary people like you and me who, you know, according to public opinion polls, really don't think that we ought to continue engaging with that regime, which is, you know, very untrustworthy, um, kidnaps Canadians and holds them as hostages to try and pressure our government and, um, you know, engages in all sorts of other activities like harassing of people in Canada to pressure them to support the government, uh, co covert, coercive, or corrupt activities, of influence activities. They, they, um, you know, they attempt to to acquire Canadian natural resources that have geostrategic bases. All you know, all of these things. Did not speak of their their own policy of genocide against Turkic Muslims in the Northwest, or expansion into the South China Sea, or you know, attempting to, to corrupt third world dictatorships with the Belt and Road Initiative to restructure the global economy with China at the center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you've got, you know, you've got a state that is not abiding by the international rules-based order, flouting that in diplomacy and trade. Um, you know, don't forget our $3 billion worth of canola seed contracts that they arbitrarily uh, terminated to apply pressure to us over, you know, our extradition process with the Huawei CFO, Meng Wanzhou. So you've got, you know, you've got a country that's doing this sort of thing. We're likely to be in conflict with them in future. Um, you know, it seems almost inevitable. And uh, we are also allowing their military, against the advice of the United States, 
to come up here to Canada to understand our strategic doctrine training practices and presumably work out our our weaknesses and intentions as well, all because people in the Foreign Affairs Department, not not defense, are are afraid of uh, doing anything that will alienate the Chinese regime in any way. So we're sort of all appeasement all the time with China, and perhaps an expectation that if we can clear up the Hmong and Kovrig and Saver matter, that they can go back to doing what they were doing before, which is you know certain Canadian corporations with political connections enriching themselves through lucrative business arrangements with Chinese communist business networks. So, I, you know, it is appalling. Uh, well, I, I don't under, I don't have a clue how this even got started. Like, how did we, uh, uh, maybe it was not under the Trudeau government. I don't know. It could have been under the Harper government or the Cretchen. I mean, I don't know how far this goes back, but it just seems unbelievable that anyone at any point would have said considering the stuff as you point out with the Uyghurs in the the, the Muslim minority from the Turkish p- part of the country or, um, or or going into Hong Kong or anything like we, we position ourselves Charles as this country that will not stand for anything but the purest of you know we demand the purity from our own people as far as their social positions and everything else and then we allow this it just it's so contradictory yeah I mean obviously the the right thing to have done would have been to say uh to the Chinese military, well, you know, thank you for inviting us to your military games, and, uh, you know, we, we uh, enjoy collaboration with you, but you're holding two of our people as hostages and subjecting them to brutal incarceration, so I'm sorry, we're not going to, we're not going to collaborate with you. You know, the main thing about these military cooperations, and, you know, and I, I worked in the Canadian Embassy in Beijing, and, and every embassy, Canadian embassy, has a military attaché who's supposed to you know, establish relations with the local military. And the idea is to build up understanding and to build up trust. But the thing is that the Chinese People's Liberation Army is the army of the Chinese Communist Party. It's not actually the, you know, it's not loyal to the state. It's loyal to a political party. And we don't trust the Chinese Communist Party with good reason. And therefore, we cannot establish a trusting relationship with the People's Liberation Army that you know that army is engaged in extensive programs of cyber espionage and downloading um, personal data we you know we had a few years ago we had to close down uh, several government departments because the computers were so badly hacked and then under harper we exposed that the chinese had hacked into the national research council and were downloading aerospace um, data so you know they're not they're not a trustworthy partner and i don't think that we ought to be collaborating with them and and any you know why anyone in Ottawa would think that's possibly a good idea, you know the same as you. I just it just doesn't process. Doesn't make sense. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Charles, here here's the other thing. We heard that this. Well, if you look at what the Globe's report says, that these documents, which are marked as uh, Canadian eyes only and top secret and all those things, if this is no big deal. If this wouldn't cause any consternation among Canadians, if this was just normal everyday behavior, why would the government not just have come out and made an announcement saying, hey, we're cooperating with the Chinese and they're going to have a few people here and they're going to help us and we're going to help them. As soon as you don't mention this kind of stuff, it just screams, we're trying to keep something secret. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that one. And, you know, the the, the attempt to redact it um, suggests protection of of certain interests in our government, which the Canadian public would not approve of in terms of their apparent um, compromising Canadian principles and security 
in the interests of, um, of China's um, economic possibilities for trade and investment. So, uh, you know, I, I think in, in general, um, uh, as you say, they, they, the, the general, the public, according to recent polls, are down to single digits in approving of the way that Canada's been engaging with China, this policy of essentially not doing anything um, so that we can uh, maintain the promise of access to the Chinese market. And maybe if we if we treat China nicely enough, they would release Kovrigan's favor. But I think what the regime is looking at is that hostage diplomacy is working for them because they, man- they seem to have managed to cow our government into full compliance with the Chinese government's agenda for Canada. So, you know, I... I, I I think we need more transparency, more openness, and more clarity on what our government is doing with China, and then we can let the people decide if they think that the government is acting in accordance with what people want. And I think in the case of the China file, it's pretty clear that they are not. Here is a line uh, from the Globe and Mail's report, which uh, just steps this up a little bit. Government documents seen by the Globe and Mail and marked secret and for Canadian eyes only show that officials at the highest levels of global's affair, global affairs were alarmed that General Jonathan Vance, chief of the defense staff, had cancelled winter military exercises with the PLA in 2019. So we've got, a, we've got someone at the high levels who says we can't do this. We've got to cancel this. And people in the government saying... Wait a second. What are you doing? I, again, it, it just seems kind of completely tone deaf, and I don't want to keep harping on the same thing. But we're even hearing now in government documents that they're saying, "Well, wait, you can't stop this. Why can't we stop this?" It sounds like if we're, we're so scared of not kowtowing that we're now scared to even stand our ground on our own soil. Well, I think it's because they're moneyed inf- interests who have a lot of influence in the prime minister's office and senior levels. You know that they do listen to it. I mean, it makes sense that our government pays attention to corporations that that create employment and prosperity for Canada. But these corporations have connections with China that are a bit too tight, and the Chinese regime is expecting political payback for for uh, uh, you know allowing people to to get rich off the the China business. I think um, you know it really is at the most senior levels that these issues are happening. We know that at lower levels of the intelligence services, they've been making a lot of warnings to government and urging the government uh, about Chinese espionage and so on, and urging that the government put more resources into it and take action to declare persona non grata Chinese um, military agents and so on who are functioning in our country. Um, You know, there are more uh, diplomats accredited to China and Canada than any other country, including the United States, about a third more than the U.S. has here. So, you know, from that point of view, I think that there's a lot of cause for suspicion. And I think that the military was acting on good advice. Their their counterparts in the U.S. military were saying, this is a bad idea to let the Chinese military into your bases and to participate in these activities because they will get operational information that will be damaging to, to us in, in time of conflict. And so, you know, the military were doing the right thing. They didn't consult with foreign affairs about it. But they had consulted about foreign affairs over it, and foreign affairs said, uh, "You know, carry on. Uh, don't don't pay any attention to what to what uh, military specialists from down south are saying. Just do it." Um, you know, would that have been the right solution? So there may have been some some strategic thinking in our military in not going over to the global affairs in the Pearson Building to check out whether they agree with us not doing things with the Chinese military. 
The uh, the headline on the Globe and Mail store under exclusive is Global Affairs objected to Canadian military decision to cancel training with China's People's Liberation Army. You should absolutely give it a read. Uh, Charles Burton, thank you so much for the time today and for explaining all this. It's been great to speak with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a press conference yesterday in the States in which 18 astronauts were introduced. From this group, we are told will come the next people to walk on the moon. Now, you may not even be aware this has been happening, but plans are in place for Americans to go to the moon as early as 2024. Once upon a time, this would have been not just the biggest story of the day or the biggest story of the week. It's all anybody would have been talking about today. You might have missed it, which is weird because it's still such a cool, unbelievable thing. Dr. Jesse Rogerson is an assistant professor at York University with a specialty in astronomy and astrophysics. He joins us now. Dr. Rogerson, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Just before we get into the why we want to do this again and what we can glean and all that kind of stuff from science, I am, from that introduction, I am fascinated by the fact that this was nowhere near the lead story anywhere yesterday. You go back 50 years and it was all anybody would talk about. This was the story of a generation. What has changed? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. Um, It may be. So when you look at the difference um, in the time, I mean, there was just as much social unrest. There was just as much um, social and political unrest Um, in the 60s was just an incredible time of of war and poverty and uh, social justice. And things like that are happening now, right? Those are similar distractions. We, um, well, distractions is the, the wrong word to use, but similar other things happening in the news that can take up space. Sure, right? pulling your attention away. Exactly. And we also have the pandemic, which is going on right now. But none of those would, I would say, uh, are contributing factors to what you're suggesting, because similar um, social and uh, upheaval was happening at the same time in the 60s. What the difference is, is that we feel, I think, we feel like this is more commonplace now. And this, this is actually a phenomenon that started happening almost immediately when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. They landed and almost immediately um, the public's attention started um, going elsewhere because the, the thing had been achieved, right? And that's, when, that's why the Apollo program was eventually terminated with 17, Apollo 17 in 1972. And it took a while to, to bridge the gap um, between the Apollo program and the incredibly um, forward-looking International Space Station, which is now fully operational and has been going for at least 20 years now. So it, it takes time to build that kind of cap- captive audience. And, and, and with the shuttle program in between, too, with the shuttle program that for, <laughs> that for a while was fascinating. And then again, uh, I mean, it's ghoulish to say this, but it took a horrendous accident for it to seem to capture people's attention again. Yeah, when, when it becomes what we perceive as commonplace, it tends to lose its appeal. And, you know, just a couple of, so we had these 18 astronauts that were announced. This is an incredible, cool thing. They're going back to the moon. They might be there by 2024. But just a couple of days before that, SpaceX was um, blowing up YouTube with their awesome uh, test launch of their thing called Starship. So not only is it government institutions like NASA, it's private companies and people like like Elon Musk, who are trying to launch into space, and Jeff Bezos. So we have, it's almost like we have a, a saturated market, and, and we, have, mm. we have a lot of things to look at, right? And so uh, space doesn't always get the same view that it got in the 60s. 
can we recapture that that fascination though? I mean, I do believe that the day that they launch, there will still be great interest. Now, I don't know if the day they launch for the second trip to the moon, there will be, but when we go back for this generation, I do believe people will be around their TVs. Absolutely. I 100% yes, we can. I think it won't be like it's, you said it exactly right. It won't be a sustained where people are checking the NASA website every single day or checking the CSA website every single day. But when these launches happen, when you see the next person, um, the first woman and the next man to walk on the moon, that is going to be all eyes on the planet are going to be glued to um, the TV or to YouTube or to TikTok or to social media. Like it's going to be everywhere. Right. And and so it can be recaptured. And and just think also that this Artemis program with these 18 astronauts, this is setting up the next step, which is going off to Mars. So. Right. Right. There's, there's a lot of interest um, there's a lot of things that are on the horizon that astronauts are going to be doing. And so it can definitely be recaptured. Why do we though, and you may have just touched on it with your answer there, but why do we want to go back to somewhere we've already been? We've already achieved this. I know it was a long time yeah. ago, but it's been done. We've great. Yeah. We've achieved landing on the moon with people. We've done that, but we still have so many open questions on, on the, the geology and formation of something like the moon. Um, just the act of landing on it is one piece of trying to figure out our place in the solar system. The moon is the closest thing to us. It's actually part of us. It used to be part of the Earth, and it was uh, shattered off of us through this huge cataclysmic event um, billions of years ago. And understanding how the moon formed, how it, how it evolves through time, its geological processes, those are interesting science um, things to be doing. And they help us understand how a, a big, huge solar system like ours, with all its planets and moons and comets and asteroids, the, the understanding of the moon helps us understand how everything is, fits together in this big, huge puzzle piece. So, yes, we've been there, but we, there's so much science left to do on understanding our universe that it, it, would, be, it would be incredible not to go back to the moon. We would be, it'd almost be, I would, say it's, I would suggest it like it's like sticking our head in the sand. If we don't go back to the moon and keep learning, we're just sticking our head in the sand. Um, and that's just the scientific um, uh, pursuits. There's a lot of other interesting pursuits to go back to the moon for as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Rogerson, one of the things that um, that strikes me as well about this that's so interesting to me, about two years ago maybe, maybe a little longer than that, I had Gene Kranz on the show. He was the, you would know this, but for other people, he was the flight director for Apollo 11 when it landed on the moon. And he's the guy with the brush cut that Ed, um, Ed Harris played in Apollo 13 in the movie with, uh, uh, with Tom Hanks. Anyway, and at the time I asked him 50 years later, should it not be super easy for us with all the technology we now have that we didn't have then, should it not be super easy for us to get back to the moon? And his answer, which surprised me, was no, this is still an unbelievable, monumental challenge, almost the same as it was then. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, yes, it's not, it's not trivial uh, to go to space. And that's I think, alludes to the, the introductory questions we are going through, that we perceive it as trivial. Like, we've done it. We go to space every day. There's astronauts in space all the time. Elon Musk is launching, launching stuff. This is easy. And no, it's not. It's a it's a, an act of incredible engineering to put something like this together. And that's just to go to low Earth orbit. If you want to land on the moon, the amount of things that you need to put together, that you need to go right, that you need to do 
perfectly, absolutely perfectly. Like it's, it's a long list. And, and so putting a mission like this together, doing the Artemis program, the follow-on to the Apollo missions, um, this is, yeah, it's, it takes all of the best scientists and engineers from around the world. Um, it takes funding. It takes dedication. It takes grit to make this thing happen. And, and so it's not, it's not a, a given. It's not a given. You have to. But I struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with that a little bit only because if you look at cars from 1969 compared to 2020, (laughs) and I'm just using one example, but I mean, our cars now that with all the technology and they park themselves, they do this, they do that. We surely, if that kind of leap has happened in technology, why has the same leap not been doable in rockets so that we could just plug in some numbers and say, go to the moon and they're there? (laughs) Well, I mean, to be fair, there has been incredible um, advancements in rocket technology and rockets are better. They're more streamlined. Um, they're, they're, they do things differently now than they did back in the 60s and, and the 70s. But it is like the, the analogy doesn't work very well because the, it's incredibly harder. It's just it's more difficult to go to space um, than it is to build a car. And, and so the, to, to get something, and it's not just the rockets. It's not just the, the technology and the engineering. It's the precision, the incredible precision needed to when you have thousands of pounds of rocket fuel shooting out the bottom of you um, and <laughs> you're putting astronauts on top of that, you, uh, you know, just when you, you talk, you alluded to the Challenger and to the Columbia disasters that happen, like any small little change or small little problem can have disastrous results. Mm. So it needs to be like, if your engine misfires on your car, you know, at worst you stall, right? You know, it's not a big deal, but uh, in the end, in the space world, if your engine misfires, you're you're killing people, and that's a, a really important thing to keep in mind. You mentioned a few minutes ago um, about Mars, and you know this this is something that we've heard a lot more of, quite honestly, than we have even of the Moon. Could, forgive the horrible pun, but could this be the launching point to go to Mars? This gets us back in the game, and then on we go to something bigger. I think that is what myself and other people in my field are, are really feeling is that it is the launching point. I mean, it is one of the stated goals of the Artemis program is to learn about the moon and to get better at going to space so that we can go to Mars. It's right there in the fine print. Like we want to learn how to land on these places. We want to learn how to live on these places for long periods of time, because if you're going to Mars, Mars is a two year not for a weekend. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> The moon is a great way to test that, where you can set up a base. You can have a group of people working for a long period of time, say like a month or something. You can learn, get them to learn how to use the resources that are there. So, for, ex- for example, the Artemis program in 2024 is targeting uh, to land at the south pole of, of the moon. And the south pole of the moon has these permanently shadowed craters that never, ever, ever see sunlight at their bottom. And in the bottom of those craters, there's water ice. So how do we utilize that water that's there for the, say, for drinking water or for oxygen to breathe or burn or hydrogen to breathe or burn um, for fuel or for, or for life? So those kinds of questions of how do you live in a place, how do you use the resources of the place that's there is perfectly setting up so that we can get further out to the planet Mars, which is like, that's the real that's the real thing where you, you can't, you don't have earth three days away. Earth is six months away. It is, uh, it is fascinating. I look, I, I have absolutely no scientific experience <laughs> or abilities. 
But this is one of the things I, I think there are two trips that I would be willing to take that would be high risk, but I would do one would be down to Titanic and one would be to the moon. If that opportunity presented, I can't, I can't think of anything cooler. Um, I don't know about I you. Agree. I don't know. I don't know. We got to run. I don't know if you would have enough confidence to jump on a rocket and go to the moon or not, but um, I, would. I would love to I give it a try. I definitely go. I wouldn't, I mean, I would, I definitely have confidence in the engineers that are doing it. That doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous no. thing to do. Um, but but the the people that build these things are the best in the world, and and I have confidence in what they're doing. That's for sure. I do also want to say that can't, this is we're talking about NASA centered, and this is a NASA centered program. Artemis is a NASA program, but Canada is a bit of a part of this. And one of the things that's part of Artemis is the Lunar Gateway, which is going to be another space station that orbits the Moon instead of orbiting the Earth. And Canada is going to be adding a another Canadarm to it. You know how we have Canadarm. Well, yep. we're uh, MDA, which is out of Brampton, um, is going to be building Canadarm three, and Canadarm three will be going on to the Lunar Gateway Space Station, and it will be flying around the moon. And so Canada is right there, right on the front. We may even get to send astronauts there. You know, let's after. hope so. Let's hope so. We still have a chance, Jesse. There's a <laughs> yeah. chance that you or I may get there. Maybe. Uh, listen, we got to run. Sadly, I uh, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today, Doctor Jesse Jesse Rogerson. Thanks for the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.